I don't know what those white people in this country feel. I can only include what they feel from the state of their institution. Now, this is the evidence. You want me to make an act of faith, risking myself, my wife, my woman, my sister, my children, on some idealism which you assure me exists in America, which I have never seen. Okay, this is part two of Indigenous Peoples Day. Um, we've got a few more parts that Garen's going to walk us through, but I just wanted to notice that Katina and I are actually holding and flipping through pages of our first book, Black History for White People, Volume 1. Do you hear that? You hear that? Hey, it is Jason. live on Amazon. Live. We are officially self-published authors, so Yay. check it out. Go to blackhistoryforwhitepeople.com, which is our brand new website. So that's Come on, cool. website. Check it out. Give it a look. Uh, let us know. You can also support us on Patreon. $5 a month. That's all it takes. It's This book is really good. Like, can I just say that? Even if I weren't, like, in the pages, yeah. I would say that this... Well, if I wasn't in the pages, I don't know how good it'd be. I'm just playing. I'm just playing. Yeah, check it out. Read it with your friends. <laughs> we wrote it so you can kind of read it in a group of people and there's I questions know. and stuff. So It is so well formatted. It's got discussion questions. So yeah. it's a good book to invite some it friends, really... friends to read with you. Yeah, and leave us a review on Amazon. I think that's helpful. Yeah, so. tell us how you feel about it. Yeah, unless it's negative. Don't. Tell Wait, us. I kidding. want the feedback. <laughs> I know, I'm just kidding. You're so crazy. Okay, let's jump back in. Indigenous All right. People's Day. I know this episode is actually releasing on, so today is, if you're listening to this, when it came out, it actually is Indigenous People's Day yes, here indeed. in the USA. So let's continue our story, Garen. What, what do we need to know? So we are talking about the, not the full comprehensive history of Indigenous peoples, but the focusing on the relations between Indigenous people and white settlers, particularly the Plains tribes and the white settlers who they encountered. So... We all have conceptions of or a mental picture of who indigenous people are and there are caricatures that we have that are part of our culture. And the caricatures that we have don't come from history or even really from reality. They mostly come from Hollywood. Hollywood has done so much to shape our idea of different characters in culture like but the pirate, for instance. I went to a pirate museum one time mm -hmm. and they talked about actual pirates and what they looked like and what they talked like and what they sounded like. And then they had all these posters of different movies to show how the modern idea of a pirate was made up by yeah. Hollywood. And our current idea of a pirate with the eye patch and the peg leg, the parrot, our, all that is not from history. It's just from Hollywood. All right. But it becomes part of, you know, and for pirates, it doesn't matter too much because there aren't modern pirates who we have these stereotypes towards. But for indigenous peoples, Hollywood has built up all these stereotypes that have continued on and carried on and colored who indigenous people, like it's like a backdrop that they have to live against. And so I want to first just talk a little bit about Hollywood and how Hollywood has been biased throughout history. Okay. So in 1973, Marlon Brando won an Academy Award and he tried to raise awareness for the mistreatment of indigenous peoples by sending an Apache woman named Sashin Littlefeather to decline his award because he wanted to raise awareness. Yeah. So he wanted to create a stir. So he had her read a speech, and she initially was booed and then received a mixture of boos and applause as she explained that, that Brando was refusing the award. And then John Wayne was so incensed right. by the situation and by Brando's activism that he attempted to physically assault Littlefeather and had to be restrained by six security guards. The man, the myth, the legend tried to, fight a, tried to assault a woman at an award show. Mm. Just for being a messenger of Brando's activism. And then after that, friends of Littlefeather later disclosed to her that the FBI came and threatened to shut down their productions if they ever hired her for another role. Wow. Marlon Brando was a great, a dear friend of James Baldwin, which was really, mm -hmm. even for Hollywood, I mean, you would think that Hollywood was so liberal and they were so not. <laughs> mm -hmm. And not that, I mean, I don't know, the, the word liberal, like, 
I don't know. It means different things to different. Yeah, it's period. like you would think that they would that Hollywood would be, would be more progressive, but to your point, they played a huge role in the perpetuation of stereotypes and, and racism and bias mm-hmm. in their in their in their film. So I mean, in their you know in the media. Yeah. So along those lines, and just kind of summing up this thread, Yellow Wolf, an indigenous leader of the Nez Perces, said, "The whites told only one side." told it to please themselves, told much that is not true. Only his own best deeds, only the worst deeds of the Indian has he told. That's facts. Mm-hmm. And we've we talked about this before. Everyone wants to think of themselves as the hero of their own story. And so there's this temptation on the part of white Americans who at, at that point of history, we're talking late 1800s, white Americans wanted more land and wanted to take that land from, it was, it was all under the control, it was all west of that permanent Indian line that we had talked about in the last episode. And so they needed justifications to take the entire western half of America. And the justification that they came up with was basically to say that indigenous people were savages and therefore did not have rights to the land. Right. So continuing that story, we're going to jump in again and focus on two more groups of indigenous people. So the first of those, we're going to be talking about the Santee Sioux of Minnesota. And we're going to focus in on the Santee Sioux, but just know the kinds of things that are happening here were happening throughout America. And this is just, we have to kind of zoom in on some particular stories. So for for context, Big Eagle gives us a quote and says, The white men often abused the Indians and treated them unkindly. Perhaps they had excuse, but the Indians did not think so. They seemed to say by their manner, when they saw an Indian, I am better than you. The Indians did not like this. There was excuse for this, but the Dakota Sioux did not think there were better men in the world than they. And when the white men abused the Indian women in certain way and and disgraced them, there is no excuse for that. All these things made the Indians dislike the whites. Understandably. Well, yeah, and it still goes on because indigenous women are the like the abuse and the the rape statistics. It is, it's insane, which I'm sure we'll we'll talk about later on. But yeah, yeah, and we talked about the dynamics that he's expressing here. Yeah, as we talk about white supremacy towards Black Americans, but just to point out that it was the same kind of dynamics of this air of superiority that left indigenous peoples in those days in this impossible position of trying to represent themselves as having human dignity and value yeah. in contexts that didn't see or respect it. And this narrative that they were savages. Mm-hmm. It's so easy to paint a people group as savage. Mm-hmm. The metaphor that I sometimes come back to, and I will give any listener that wants to go down this road, permission to use my idea here. But I've always thought it would be a great idea to make a movie, you know, like alien invasion movies, Independence Day or District 9 Mm. or some kind of alien invasion movie that basically takes the stories that we're telling here, the the true stories of Mm. white settlers coming and being oppressive towards indigenous Americans and almost put people, the viewer, in the shoes of the indigenous people by having the aliens who are coming do the things that the settlers did and interact in the ways that the settlers interacted so that we can almost see and feel like how wrong that is to be put into... I think in District 9, the aliens put the people into basically like reservations similar to what we did to indigenous people and to just like feel that. And then just give us, uh, obviously give us the the monetization of that if you do end up doing that and it's (laughs) successful. You could just, you know, make a little donation to it. Become a patron. Yeah. So... Now a mess. In the decade preceding the Civil War, 150,000 white settlers crossed the permanent Indian frontier. That line that the treaty said should not be crossed. Mm. 150,000 white settlers crossed it into Santee Sioux country. So this, this is just into this specific territory. Mm. Through two deceptive treaties, the Woodland Sioux were cheated out of nine-tenths of their land. They were promised annuities, a perpetual payment of money and Mm. goods, in exchange for their land, but they were systematically cheated out of those payments. Mm. 
The annuities came from Washington, but white traders and shop agents had the first claim on the money. So in those days, they had like a credit system with shops and stuff. So the shopkeepers would come and say, well, they owe us all this money, and they would just take it all. So here's kind of how the racket worked. One example of it was that Colonel Henry H. Sibley cheated the Santees. Out of $475,000 that were promised to them in the first treaty, he claimed $145,000, so about a third of the money he claimed. He had a fur trading company that would purchase furs from the Santee Sioux and resell them for a profit. And he said that he needed to claim $145,000 of their promised money from this treaty for their land because of overpayments for their furs. Which, when you think about that for more than two seconds, it's ludicrous to say, I overpaid them by $145,000, so now I need all this money. Because why would you overpay them by that much? You're the one with the money. They're the one with the furs. Like, why are you you paying them $145,000 in advance for furs that they didn't deliver on? It doesn't make sense. That's not how it would have gone down. So he's just cheating them out of the money. And then the, the government agents, they just gave him the $145,000 because it's his word against the word of these indigenous Americans who were painted as savages. So they gave him the money. And this was just one trader. There were others. So that by the end of the process, after all these traders and shopkeepers laid their claims to the annuities that were owed to the, the Santisu, basically nothing was left. During the Civil War, the Congress then abruptly canceled the annuities altogether. They just stopped even pretending to honor the obligations of the treaty. They shut up the storehouses that were full of the goods, the provisions, the food that were to be purchased with this money by the Santis. And they left the Santis to basically just starve, which is extra cruel because the Santis were relying on this food. They'd given use of their land, nine-tenths of it, and that land was how they got their food. And now they're counting on this food and going into a winter... The government basically says, nope, no food. So now you have no land, no food, you're going to starve. The Santees gathered about 500 warriors around the storehouses to break in and take this flour that they were rightfully owed, according to the treaty. There were 100 government soldiers there, but the soldiers were, at this point, sympathetic to the indigenous people because they knew what was going down, so they didn't really fight them or, or try to stop them. But the white leadership was furious, furious both at the indigenous people and at their soldiers for not firing upon them. So one of the white managers, Andrew Myrick, vented in, after this episode saying, so far as I'm concerned, if they are hungry, let them eat grass or their own dung. And that quote then spread throughout the whole of the Plains Indian country and the, the Santisus were obviously furious about it. So they quickly exhausted the game. The Santees exhausted the game on the small remaining bit of land that they still had the rights to, and they felt justified then to cross back into the rest of their land that was now claimed by white settlers. Because it's, you know, it's like if if you're refusing, you know, you're not making payments on your house, the bank says, okay, then I get it back. The bank's going to take it from you. The The government had this treaty making these annuity payments for the land defaulted on those. So the Santisus had a sensible right to return to their hunting grounds and to continue to hunt. But now that land was all claimed by white settlers and disaster struck. So in that tension of those dual claims to the land, four young Santee men ended up crossing a river taking food from and attacking and killing a white settler family. There were five settlers that were killed, two of whom were women. And so the tribal leaders gathered then, and they were terrified because they knew about the dynamic that we previously hinted at, that the white government, the white settlers, tended to respond not tit for tat, but like tenfold massive over-escalation. So they knew if two of their women died, they're going to kill a bunch of ours. Right. Yeah. So they were, they were terrified. And they're like, how do we head off this violence? How do we calm things down? So then Little Crow, the Santee warrior chief, conferred with the council 
The other leaders argued that no Santee's life would be safe now. They said basically, it is the white man's way to punish all Indians for the crimes of one or a few. We might as well strike first rather than waiting for the soldiers to come and kill us. So then Little Crow rejected their arguments, though he admitted that the white man's vengeance would be fierce, especially since two of their women had been killed. The young men in the tribe were outraged at all of the unfairness, their stolen land, the cheating agents, the broken treaties, the withheld annuities, their starvation while the agency's storehouses overflowed with food. They demanded and ultimately essentially forced Little Crow, as they were going to put someone else in charge if he didn't, uh, they forced Little Crow to go to war. And Little Crow knew that the war would be futile, knew that they didn't have the power to actually win, but they attacked the agency storehouse the next morning to take food again. When the Santees attacked the storehouses, they struck down and killed Andrew Myrick, the man who had said, if they're hungry, let them eat grass or their own dung. Yeah. And poetically, I guess in a grim sort of way, they stuffed his mouth with grass. Right. The Santees killed 20 men and captured 10 women and children. A garrison of soldiers rushed to the agency to fight the Sioux warriors but they ran into an ambush en route and half of their number was killed. So it was, you know, turning into a war. Yeah. So Little Crow's lieutenant, Radan Yanka, argued against releasing the prisoners in exchange for a white offer of peace, saying, quote, I am for the continuing of the war. I have no confidence that the whites will stand by any agreement we make if we give them up. Ever since we treated with them, their agents have robbed and cheated us. Some of our people have been shot and some hung. Others have been placed upon floating ice and drowned. Many have starved in their prisons. The older ones would have prevented it if they could, but since the treaties, they have lost all their influence. We may regret what has happened, but the matter has gone too far to remedy. We have got to die, so let us kill as many of the whites as possible and let the prisoners die with us. You can see the despair. Yeah, the hopelessness. Of like they wanted peace, wanted to honor their commitments and have the commitments of the United States honored, wanted to live in a mutual respect, but in light of this continual pattern of seeing that that was not an option, it became a despair that ultimately was like, well, they're going to kill us no matter what we do, so we might as well go down fighting. Mm-hmm. And and that's this. That's the Santee Sioux's response, but different groups responded differently, but essentially all with the, the same kind of outcome. Yeah. So the U.S. Army ranks continued to grow because the United States being larger and more powerful ultimately was able to continue to bring in more and more reinforcements. And after the final decisive battle, many Santees fled and others surrendered. The whites put the surrendered warriors on trial, and 303 Santee soldiers or warriors were sentenced to death. President Lincoln actually stayed the executions temporarily while he had two lawyers review these proposed executions. If all of these men had been executed, I mean, even having stayed most of the executions, this still was the largest mass execution in American history. And you'll see they, they ultimately only executed 38 prisoners. But it was originally, if not for Lincoln's intervention, it would have been 10 times as many. So Lincoln intervened. He, he said to his lawyers, these two lawyers, I want you to find any of these Sioux that were just acting as like soldiers following orders and which ones had truly been responsible for murder. So they ultimately commuted most of the sentences, but they still imprisoned all these men. And then they executed 38 prisoners in a single mass execution. It was later discovered that some of the men who were hanged were hanged by mistake. And at least in one case, one of the men who was hanged actually had intervened and saved a white woman during one of the raids. Right. They just wanted blood, though. Yep. I mean, they... they're. Man. Oh, and I, I forgot to mention this, but the general, General Pope and Governor Ramsey were furious when Lincoln intervened and halted right. the mass execution and basically said, we're going to lynch them if you don't quickly Ugh. move to give us a final sentence. Like, if you don't quickly allow us to proceed this route, we're just going to lynch them. And, I mean, that's the governor in that day of Minnesota. 
Little Crow and some of the surviving Santees fled up to the plains of Canada. And Canada was generally more receptive, not entirely, but a lot more receptive than a lot of America. But they found it was difficult to survive in Canada without horses up in the cold. So they decided to return to Minnesota briefly to steal horses, feeling justified to take horses as a final attempt at a payment for all of their stolen land. As they returned, though, they were seen by white hunters who attacked them because the state of Minnesota had issued a $25 bounty for Santee scalps. So scalping was a process at that point that the state of Minnesota, like the U.S. government, was paying money for scalps as a bounty as a way to basically enlist any American citizen in the project of killing indigenous people. So Little Crow was killed in front of his son who fled and was captured. Little Crow's scalp and skull were preserved and put on display in St. Paul. His son was tried and sentenced to death despite only being 16 years old, but his sentence was later commuted down to imprisonment and eventually he was released. And he actually uh, went and founded the first YMCA among the Sioux later on in his life. Wow. After the war, the white settlers seized the remaining Santee lands without bothering even with the pretense of a new treaty. So that last tenth of the land they just took. Even the Santee leaders who had collaborated with the U.S. Army, had worked with America, were forced to relocate to a reservation further west in the Dakota Territory. When the first boat full of 770 Santees left St. Paul by steamboat, a white mob gathered to hurl insults and stones. Of the 1,300 Santees who were removed to the Crow Creek Reservation, fewer than 1,000 survived the first winter. Mm. That's the thing with these reservations that is over and over again the case. It's just there was a massive amount of death. I mean, it was yeah. the conditions were not meant to be conducive for human life. Many of these reservations, that's what they were at the time. No, I just... Yeah, I, I just, the loss of life. You know, I saw this video where indigenous people of our time were reflecting on the legacy of Christopher Columbus and just their experience in the America after white settlements and, you know, just taking over their land. And it's crazy because you see, I, I, you see these images of people crying, like, Young people, people younger than me, like they, they're like, what does Christopher Columbus and, you know, white settlements in America, what is that? How does that make you feel? And, and people were just moved to tears because, and, and it's so crazy because, you know, white America would think that everything is in the past and that we should move forward, even though they hold on to the history of like the Alamo and, you know, Civil War reenactments and remember this and never forget that. And we just, it's so hard for us to fathom and think about. It's so hard for us to understand that so much was taken, so much was lost. I mean, I, I'm thinking about this young man at 16 years old watching his father get scalped in front of him mm-hmm. and just the trauma, and then himself going to prison and just the trauma, that trauma, that that intergenerational trauma that continues that it would move people to tears today. Mm-hmm. And to even now, in this day and time, to be told, oh, that's the past, and move on, and America's the greatest thing in the world, and blah, 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 blah. But there's still such a, a, a tremendous residual impact of all of this bloodshed, this loss of life, this hostility, this racism, this, mm-hmm. you know, this abuse, this genocide. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It really was genocide. Yeah. It was and mass, we'll see that actually mass comes genocide. that comes through even more clearly in this next episode that we're going to talk about, but genocide is marked by both a an attempt to eradicate people like by killing people, but also an attempt to eradicate language and culture. And all those components were there. It was throughout the American West and, and we'll, in the last part of this series we'll get into the residential schools and the effort to eradicate indigenous languages and indigenous culture. It really was genocide. 
So now we're going to shift our focus from Minnesota down to Colorado. Mm-hmm. From the Santee Sioux, we're going to shift to the Cheyenne indigenous people. So I want to start with a quote from Black Kettle, who will be a major leader in this episode, the story that we're going to tell. He says, although wrongs have been done me, I live in hopes. I have not got two hearts. Now we are together again to make peace. My shame is as big as the earth, although I will do what my friends advise me to do. I once thought that I was the only man that persevered to be friends with the white man. But since they have come to clean out our lodges, horses, and everything else, it is hard for me to believe white men anymore. His name was uh, Motivado. Motivado. Black Kettle of the Southern Cheyennes. Mm-hmm. And he he was a prototypical type of indigenous leader who sought peace at all right. costs. Like some of them more quickly were like, we need to fight back. But Black Kettle, you'll see in the story, he wanted peace so badly and fought for peace. And it didn't end in peace. Right. In 1851, the Cheyennes together with other tribes, made a treaty with the U.S., pledging mutual and lasting peace and coexistence. In that treaty, the indigenous tribes did not cede any of their land, so they didn't give away the rights to any of their land. They only permitted white people to pass through it and to set up trading outposts. But in 1859, wagon trains formed forts, towns, and then Denver City. So apart from any treaty permitting it, the white people the settlers came in and just set up settlements. White people continued to arrive by the thousands, staking claim to land within the Cheyenne Territory. Only 10 years after the initial treaty, the Great Council in Washington, that is Congress, formed the Territory of Colorado. When it came to negotiating the new treaty, the U.S. proceeded with negotiations, even though only six out of 44 Cheyenne chiefs were present and they never received any form of authorization from the other chiefs. So, I mean, this is Colorado, west of the permanent Indian frontier, so your government's violating that treaty, and then they're making it a state without permission, and then they kind of get a fig leaf covering by six of the chiefs signing on to a new treaty, but don't even consult the vast majority of them. Mm. It's so blatantly unjust, unfair, not right. Lean Bear, one Cheyenne chief, visited Washington and was honored by Lincoln with a medal, an American flag, and papers signifying that he was friends of the Americans. When he returned then to Colorado, he heard soldiers moving against one of the Cheyenne groups. So he rode out to speak to them because he thought of himself as on good terms with the whites, a friend of the Americans. He had the papers for it. So he rode out seeking to mediate peace. He approached the officer, attempting to shake his hands and present his papers, showing that he was a friend of the Americans, but the officer ordered his soldiers to open fire. Lean Bear was hit and fell from his horse. Soldiers rode forward and then shot him again while he lay on the ground and killed him. Fighting ensued, and some of the Cheyennes killed a few of the soldiers. Black Kettle, the kind of main chief of the Cheyennes, then called off the fighting and led his people away, afraid that the fight would turn into a full war. So Colonel John Chivington was the leader of the U.S. soldiers in the area, and he, rather than accepting the stalemate that Black Kettle offered by calling off the fight, he escalated the tensions by instructing his soldiers to kill Cheyennes wherever they found them. So regardless of whether they had anything to do or even awareness of the skirmish, um, he ordered his people to kill them. So two Cheyenne women and two children were killed in one such attack. Then Governor Evans, the governor of the Colorado Territory, issued a circular to the quote-unquote friendly Indians of Colorado, warning that some of their number had declared war on the white men and had killed white soldiers. The governor didn't mention that all three of the scrimmages that he was referencing had begun by white soldiers opening fire on Cheyennes. Evans told the Cheyennes that they would be treated as enemies if they did not come into reservations. So you're given this ultimatum, come in to reservations, or basically, we will kill you. Black Kettle continually fought for peace and to de-escalate the situation. 
When he heard that seven white people had been taken captive by some of the the Cheyennes, he ransomed them with his own ponies in order to return them to their families. He later wrote, quote, It is not my intention or wish to fight the whites. I want to be friendly and peaceable and keep my tribe so. I am not able to fight the whites. I want to live in peace. In this hope, Black Kettle set out for Fort Lyon, hoping to speak to the soldiers and to end the downward spiral towards war. He sent two representatives to Colonel Wincoop, seeking terms of surrender. Wincoop suspected a trap, so he took the men as hostages and threatened that he would kill them if the Cheyennes were treacherous or if they backed out. So one of these two representatives of the Cheyennes then responded saying, The Cheyennes do not break their word. If they should do so, I should no longer care to live. So Colonel Wincoop changed his opinion. He saw the bravery, the honesty of these representatives of the Cheyennes, and he actually grew an affection for an appreciation of the Cheyennes. He said, quote, I felt myself in the presence of superior beings, and these were the representatives of a race that I hitherto looked upon without exception as being cruel, treacherous, and bloodthirsty, without feeling affection for friend or kindred. So he kind of had the blinders lifted off and realized, like, oh, these are people. The propaganda that I had received about them being savages was just that. And he saw that they were people, noble, respectful, honest, brave. So Wincoop was now sympathetic to the Cheyennes and offered to help them. He wanted to mediate peace. So he led Black Kettle to Denver seeking peace. Black Kettle agreed, saying, There are bad white men and bad Indians. The bad men on both sides brought this trouble on us. Some of my young men joined in with them. I am opposed to fighting and have done everything in my power to prevent it. I believe the blame rests on the whites. They commenced the war and forced the Indians to fight. When Wincoop appealed to Governor Evans, the governor replied that he did not want peace until the Indians had suffered more. So there again, you see that massive escalation. It's like, no, they have not paid tenfold for the things that they did to us, so I don't want peace yet. He said, quote, What should I do with the 3rd Colorado Regiment if I make peace? They have been raised to kill Indians, and they must kill Indians. He explained that Congress had granted his appeal for this regiment because he had sworn that it was necessary to protect against hostile Indians, and he would now be accused of misrepresenting the situation if he made peace. In other words, I told the government I needed these soldiers to kill Indians. I can't make peace now, or I look silly, so they're going to kill Indians. What an inhumane and, I mean, despicable logic. And it was logic that was based on a lie. You see there how clearly the savage stereotype was what he used to get the soldiers and then it's, you know, it's like the government, how they, they overbid and then they spend $30,000 on a toilet seat because they want to spend all their money so it doesn't get taken away. He wanted to spend all his money on this regiment so he wouldn't lose it. And so he used that to justify not spending too much on a toilet seat, but throwing lives away, killing people. Maybe take that out. That was a tangent. <laughs> Bad example, but... So Colonel Wincoop was the only friend of the Cheyennes in Colorado, and for that, he was reprimanded, and he ultimately was relieved of his duties by Major Scott J. Anthony. A few days after Anthony took charge, he ordered his men to fire upon Cheyennes coming to the camp to trade buffalo hides for food. And so then, how did Governor Evans, after all this entreatment for peace on the part of Black Kettle and the Cheyennes, How did Governor Evans respond? How did he use his 3rd Colorado Regiment? Anthony pretended to befriend the Cheyennes, but simultaneously planned a massacre. He ordered 600 troops from Colorado's 3rd Regiment to quickly come. He feigned peace to Black Kettle's group until the new regiment could arrive. Three of his own officers protested that attacking Black Kettle's peaceful camp would be murder in every sense of the word, a violation of the treaties, and a dishonor to the uniform. But Colonel Shivington defended Anthony's plan, pounding his fist and yelling, quote, 
Damn any man who sympathizes with the Indians. I have come to kill Indians, and I believe it is right and honorable to use any means under God's heaven to kill Indians. They were forced to join the expedition or else face court-martial. So they went along but quietly resolved not to attack the Cheyennes except except in self-defense. This is just sick. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they were... Essentially, these three officers were forced to go along with go this along. massacre. Yeah. And they ultimately kind of half-heartedly did. Their names were Saul, Kramer, and Connor. And when the soldiers descended on the camp, Black Kettle saw the soldiers coming and hoisted an American flag on a pole, trying to signal, we're friendly, we're peaceful. And he told his brethren not to be afraid. He said that they were peaceful and the soldiers would not hurt them. My God. But without any attempt to make contact, the soldiers opened fire from two sides. One Cheyenne, white antelope, ran towards the soldiers with his hands up, yelling, stop, stop, as if this was a miscommunication or a confusion. He held his hands in a, in a halting motion, and he was gunned down. Another Cheyenne, left hand, said that he would not fight the white man because they were his friends. He folded his hands in front of him, and he too was shot and killed. So there are two accounts that I'm going to read of this event. And one comes from uh, Robert Bent, who was conscripted by the white soldiers as a guide that night. Basically, Mm -hmm. they, they just said he kind of was a local who knew the area. He was half Indian, half white. So they took him, forced him to be their guide. So he has a written account of what happened. And then one of the three protesting soldiers also wrote an account. And I will say what actually happened is worse than what I have here because I some of it was too much even to... I mean, in general, I assume kids aren't listening at this point, but even then some of it was too much. My God. So this is his account. He said, I saw the American flag waving and I heard Black Kettle tell the Indians to stand around the flag. And there they were huddled, men, women, and children. This was when we were within 50 yards of the Indians. I also saw a white flag raised. These flags were in so conspicuous a position that they must have been seen. When the troops fired, the Indians ran. I think there were 600 Indians in all. I think there were 35 braves and some old men, about 60 in all. The rest of the men were away from the camp hunting. After the firing, the warriors put the squaws and children together to protect them. I saw five squaws under a bank for a shelter. When the troops came up to them, they ran out and showed their persons to let the soldiers know they were squaws and begged for mercy. And a squaw, just for reference, if you don't know, it was one of the women or one of the wives of the indigenous people. So that was a a general term that meant a woman. So Mm -hmm. I saw five squaws under the bank for shelter. When the troops came up to them and ran out to show their persons and let the soldiers know that they were squaws and begged for mercy, but the soldiers shot them all. I saw one squaw lying on the bank whose leg had been broken by a shell. A soldier came over to her with a drawn saber. She raised her arm to protect herself when he struck, breaking her arm. She rolled over and raised her other arm when he struck, breaking it, and then left her without killing her. There seemed to be indiscriminate slaughter of men, women, and children. There were some 30 or 40 squaws collected in a hole for protection. They sent out a little girl about six years old with a white flag on a stick. She had not proceeded but a few steps when she was shot and killed. All the squaws in the hole were afterward killed. The squaws offered no resistance. Everyone I saw dead was scalped. I saw one squaw lying dead who was cut open with an unborn child laying by her side. I saw a little girl about five years of age who had been hidden in the sand. Two soldiers discovered her, drew their pistols, and shot her, and then pulled her out of the sand by her arm. I saw quite a number of infants in arms killed with their mothers. So that's his account, and Mm. he was Robert Benton, biracial, indigenous, and white man. And then Lieutenant James Connor was one of the captains who had refused to participate in the attack, and he later wrote, In many instances, their bodies were mutilated in the most horrible manner. Men, women, and children's privates cut out. I heard one man saying he cut the finger off an Indian to get the rings on his hand. 
According to the best of my knowledge and belief, these atrocities were committed with the knowledge of J.M. Chivington, and I do not know of his taking any measures to prevent them. I heard of one instance of a child of a few months old being thrown in the feed box of a wagon and after being carried some distance and left on the ground to perish. After this massacre, the Cheyennes turned on their leadership. Black Kettle, this whole time, had urged them, be friends, be peaceful, don't attack the white people, like honor your word and trust that they will honor theirs. And after this incident, his people turned on him and deposed him from leadership because that strategy had so utterly failed. When the whites reached out to propose a new peace, after this happened, the Indian Council considered that any attempt to war against the white men would fail. They conferred, We know it, but what do we have to live for? The white man has taken our country and killed all of our game. He was not satisfied with that, but killed our wives and children. No, no peace. We want to go and meet our families in the spirit land. We loved the whites until we found out that they had lied to us and taken away everything we had. We have raised the battle axe until death. The thing that's so shocking in so much of this is just how clearly savage the white people were in... How honorable. How honorable the indigenous people were as they, with a losing hand, tried to find some way to exist with some kind of dignity, even if that meant going out fighting like a man, saying, I do not forget that we are men and braves, but knowing that they they had no way to actually overcome just this massive continual onslaught of white settlers that kept coming and the, the better-armed American army. After some tensions arose later on down the road, General Custer led his men in another massacre. He descended on a, a Cheyenne village with soldiers from four directions. They had been ordered by General Sheridan to kill the warriors and retrieve the women and children, but in reality, they massacred everyone. They killed Black Kettle, this leader who his whole life had I mean, even after that initial massacre, had remained peaceful. They killed him while he and his wife fled, signing for peace. They killed 103 Cheyennes. Only 11 of them were warriors. They killed 53 women and children and killed hundreds of horses. The Cheyennes eventually were forced to sign a new treaty on October 15, 1865, ceding all their territory north of the Arkansas River to the white settlers of Colorado. So... Around the country, white men who knew Black Kettle criticized General Sheridan's attack because Black Kettle was, was somewhat well-known in, in some white circles for having tried for a long time to be friends with the white men. And Sheridan defended himself, calling his detractors, these white people who were indignant, good and pious ecclesiastes, aiders and abettors of savages who murdered without mercy men, women, and children. In another account, a Comanche named Tasawi told Sheridan that his name meant good Indian, upon which Sheridan replied, the only good Indians I ever saw were dead. And this phrase caught on and became a popular American aphorism. It was shortened to the only good Indian is a dead Indian. And he was mm. the one who coined it. as a man with all this blood on his hands. And there again, it's like, who is the real savage? He's accusing these people of being savage and using that to justify savagery. And I just feel such grief and heaviness yeah. in light of all this. And it's so cuts against the, the manifest destiny idea of like this American, you know, being like the best of all the nations. And there's so much brokenness and treachery and savagery savagery in our story and so i want to like sit in that for a moment and first of all i want to just apologize to our indigenous listeners i want to apologize for these genocides that happened and also for the ways that we the ways that i growing up believed and held in my mind some of these same stereotypes that had the power 
to strip away your humanity. Both then, it was used to literally justify murder and genocide, and now still fights against the humanity of indigenous people who have to live against this unfair backdrop, this narrative, trying to prove themselves and measure themselves against this false story of being other stereotypes have arisen now, including like being lazy or drunk, and just these stereotypes that are used to disenfranchise and devalue indigenous people. Well, and to dehumanize and de, I don't know, it's like a, a desensitizing of what really happened when you think about the songs and the books and the movies. I mean, think about some of these Disney movies where, and, and just the concept of like Cowboys and Indians and 10 Little Indians, like all these songs that you grow up, like I'm 50 this year. So these songs that you grow up with and, and even just in school, dressing up like pilgrims and some people dressing up like Indians and sitting at the table and or eating. Mascots. Yeah, mascots. Uh, my husband went to Arkansas State University in Jonesboro and, you know, they have an Indian mascot. They do the song song and just that that offensive. It, it's weird. It's so weird how whiteness will consume to the point of like annihilating another culture, a whole nother people group, but then consume the culture of that people people group, appropriate that and prop that. And I mean, it's just it's so demonic. It's so demonic. And then we're just so insensitive and desensitized to the whole situation of what a people group that existed in this land, what they went through. I mean, and we're so indignant. And how dare we have a Columbus Day? How dare we take images of indigenous people and use them as props and use them as mascots and sing songs and mimic and and here they here these people are in this land they there are there are many indigenous people that live in our land live in this country that originally belonged to them this land that originally belonged to them that have been pushed out into reservations and have had to deal with all this intergenerational trauma and just just from years of abuse and genocide and savagery against their people, all the lives lost, all the, I mean, all the broken family lines, the broken family tree. I mean, when I think of them, I think of a family tree, just like for African-Americans, a family tree that's just, the branches have just been broken and burnt. And oh my gosh. And we just act like, if it, you know, to get rid of a mascot that is you know, to in order to honor a people is so so offensive. People get get death threats over changing a mascot. We should stop singing these songs. We should stop, you know, with this this assemblage. We should we should stop this. And people get so pissed. And and it's like, do y'all know what 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 was done? <laughs> I mean, Columbus Day is a federal holiday. <laughs> it it's just. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm in te- I, like I'm in tears right now. Like it, my, my heart is just broken for because of course I, you know uh, many black people. I have indigenous roots. My great grandmother was uh, black and indigenous. My husband's grandmother was black and indigenous. His grandmother's mother was Blackfoot. My great grandmother's mother was Cherokee, and I'm you know Tennessee. And I, I just don't know. I'm just dumbfounded. Mm. I'm just dumbfounded. And so uh, just as a final thought, like for white people today, like how do you process this being part of America's story? Because part of the temptation, and we, we confront this a lot, as part of the temptation is just, this is too sad. Don't just look away. And, and there is a level at which some of this, I mean, is not appropriate content for children. I think there's like an age-appropriate way to tell the truth of the American story but if we don't tell the true story of who the real savages were, then that is directly and sinfully unloving to indigenous people. Because 
if they were not, and as you can tell from these stories, like they were not the real savages of the story, then to leave that stereotype in place has this continual harming power against indigenous people, this otherizing power. And so the loving response is to tell and to learn and to share the reality of these stories, even though it's painful. And that is humbling. But that humility is not a bad thing. Like if America has to be humbled, that's good for America. Because humility actually, I mean, there's like the old slogan that humility is a virtue, but actually in so many ways, humility is critical to growth. Because until you can admit that you're not perfect, you can't actually think in terms of how do we grow? Because instead you're just, well, we're perfect. We just, and then you're not thinking about growing. But once you can admit we have a really broken history, then you can start to think, how do we make things better? How do we repair? And when we tell the truth about history, then we bestow dignity dignity and honor to the people who were impacted by this the, the history. And we need to humanize people and their experiences and their stories. And we need to work to eradicate anything that dishonors a people group, period. We need to we need to get rid of Columbus Day as a holiday. We need to take down Columbus statues. They need to be thrown into the sea. Yeah, and indigenous people need to be in charge of 100% of the decisions over how they are represented. Absolutely, mm-hmm. 100%. And we also need to give space and hold space for people like Black Kettle, right? He wanted peace to preserve his people. He went about it one way and then... You know, eventually there were, was it within his tribe that new people were assigned as chief because they wanted to fight? I mean, there's there's going to be, indigenous people are not a monolith, just like black people are not a monolith. Just like any people group that has experienced disparities and oppression is not a monolith. And all of the trauma that, the, the residual effects of the trauma, it affects us all differently. But even there, just the, those people fighting back was... Just, it was justified. I mean, in the same way that it like, was heroized the what you the remember the Alamo. Yeah, like, those were people who were fighting back, and we like heroize. But then almost like in the case of well, if the indigenous people fought back, then that's like strike against them. It's like no, they were just going back to the movie thing. If you saw an alien invasion story that had all these elements that I just said, would you not feel justified in fighting back? Like, would you not feel justified in defending your people and your home by fighting back. And that's empathizing with how the indigenous people rightly felt in that time. 